You're listening to Kill Cliff's Hazard Ground Podcast with service members from across the military sharing their stories of combat and survival. And now, here's your host, Mark Zeno. Welcome into the Hazard Ground Podcast. As always, we appreciate you joining us each and every week. Before we get to this week's guest, as we go back to the Vietnam War to tell a very personal story from men who went on to be an author of several books, but most notably his personal story in Vietnam. Our normal announcements that we always give you every week. Make sure you guys subscribe to our social media channels, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Hazard Ground Podcast at Hazard Ground. Look for us all over social media. Interact with us there. Please leave us messages. Tell us what you like about the show, what you don't like. We do our best to get back to everybody on social media as often as we can. So by all means, again, please uh, hit us up on social media. Don't forget to uh, also leave us Apple reviews. Please continue to help us grow the show wherever you get your Apple podcasts. Give us a five-star rating. Tell us why you love the show. It does not have to be a lengthy review. Something very short, very simple. Uh, and, and why you love the show that will help us grow this hazard ground community as we try to crack the top 100 Apple podcasts. We're moving our way up, but need your help to do it. Uh, and tell a friend. Tell a friend to also leave a review that you know about this podcast or that that's a fan of this podcast. And certainly we appreciate you guys doing that as always. Our promotion with Amazon on our website, always a constant reminder there because it's an easy way for you to help out veterans all across America just by going to hazardground.com. That's our website. And then you click on the Amazon button at the bottom of our homepage or into the sponsors tab, redirects you to Amazon. And uh, once you get redirected to Amazon, um, you will be able to, uh, do all of your normal Amazon shopping. We'll get a percentage of what you guys spend, and then we'll donate a percentage of that back to some of the great charities and organizations you've heard featured here on the Hazard Ground. So uh, with all that out of the way, I want to remind you as well to subscribe to our YouTube channel. And don't forget to download the Killcliff TV app because those both places, our YouTube channel and Killcliff TV app, you can watch all of our Hazard Ground episodes uh, it's a great way just to see who the guests are and interact with us and certainly a different way other than audio to be able to um, listen and watch the hazard ground. And then don't forget about killcliff.com. Get all of your clean energy drinks at Killcliff. Uh, all proceeds there benefit the Navy SEAL Foundation started by a former Navy SEAL. If you're into CBD, they make a wonderful line of CBD products. I personally use Killcliff, the pre-workout, the post-workout. Those are my favorites. So by all means, uh, use the the killcliff.com to order all of your killcliff. All right, let's get on to uh, this week's episode uh, with a man who enlisted at the Navy at 17 years old. Uh, he ended up just spending four years in the Navy and got out as an E5, a boatsman's mate, second class. Uh, but he had two tours in Vietnam, one of them, which he was injured uh, on a river boat in Vietnam in 1968 during the bloodiest year of the war. Uh, his Vietnam memory stories, as he told them, involved into a memoir, which he turned into a book called Muddy Jungle Rivers. It is the 10 year anniversary of that book. And Muddy Jungle Rivers was the 2017 Veterans Voice Award um, for the book that he wrote um, in Minnesota, where he is originally from. And we welcome onto the show Wendell Affield here on the Hazard Ground. Wendell, welcome, and thank you so much for being here. Oh, thank you for having me, Mark. Okay. Um, I want to get to Muddy Jungle Rivers. Obviously, uh, you went on to become an author, write several other books that are uh, more historical narratives, but not necessarily military uh, related. So we'll, we'll get to that coming up here in, in just a few moments. But uh, at 17 years old, 
during the Vietnam War, you decide to enlist in the Navy. Why? I did. Well, <laughs> that's kind of a different childhood. Um, in 1960, the summer of 1960, my mother was committed to a mental hospital, and we nine children were placed in foster homes. And over the next four years, I bounced through five different foster homes. And uh, the summer of 1964, I rode the rails and lived in hobo camps. And I met my first Vietnam veteran. Well, that fall, I came back to high school. I was in the 11th grade. And about oh, November or so, I realized this this just isn't doing it for me. So I dropped out of school and, and went up to the recruiter's office. Well, it's kind of a humorous story. I, I We have a federal building here in Bemidji, Minnesota. And I went up to the fourth floor, knocked on a Marine recruiter's door because the real men were Marines, right? So no answer. I went next door to the Navy recruiter's office and knocked and a enlisted man let me in, probably a first class petty officer I'm recalling. And I asked him where the Marine recruiter was and he said, well, he's gone for the day. Why are you thinking of enlisting? And I said, yes, sir. And he said, well, just between you and me, the Marine Corps sucks. <laughs> and here I was a 17 year old kid fresh off the farm still smelling the cow manure on my shoes, signing my papers for the Navy. A couple of weeks later, I was on a plane to uh, San Diego with boot camp. Now, were you, uh, were you mentally and physically prepared for boot camp at that point? Um, you know, as much as a 17-year-old farm kid from northern Minnesota can be, I love the warm weather. I left in dead of winter and well, it was early March actually. Um, but I was, I was just amazed at how warm it was. And, and I think I was better prepared than some of the recruits. Absolutely. Psychologically, I, I, I did okay. You know, I, I had a very Spartan upbringing. So, uh, you know, I, yeah, I did okay. I have some memories from a few other recruits in our company that didn't do so well i mean you you had to know uh when you enlisted that you were going to end up in vietnam at some point that didn't phase you that didn't deter you obviously in any way i mean what was the sort of thought process in that Uh, there really wasn't one you know i came into it we we you have to understand we lived in a very isolated existence we didn't have a television okay um and in in our world up here, you know, among the old farmers, they were all World War II vets, a couple of Korean vets who never talked about anything. But we grew up with the mindset that America was heroic. We were the we were always right. And you know, you listen to the old World War II. Well, they weren't old then; they were younger than both of us. And in the early fifties, and you knew it was the right thing to do to go into the military so it was a positive mindset all right so how quickly after you finish basic training um are you moving somewhere else what's your first duty station where are you going and 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 that sort of deal i went i went directly from boot camp onto the uss rogers dd876 it was a destroyer it was home ported out of san diego so it was it was a pretty 
easy move. And um, I didn't go, to, they didn't send me to any schools out of boot camp. I went right to the deck force, which was where kind of a dumping station for a lot of recruits. Um, but soon after I got on her, I enjoyed the work. I enjoyed the standing bridge watches and lookout watches. And I had a lot of freedom and, you know, to move around the ship. And um, I, before we went to our Vietnam deployment, I was sent to a um, pilot rescue class for swimmers. It was swimming survival pilot rescue. And I graduated from that. And I felt really good about that because out of about 30 or 35 sailors that were in that class, there was only a few of us that actually completed it and graduated because it was it was a very strenuous. We were spending about 12 to 14 hours a day in the water. And, you know, so a lot of it was survival. And then the second um, school they sent me to from the ship was a uh, ship's landing force party because I was being trained to be the coxswain on our motor whale boat as a motorized boat on the ship. And so I, we went to a Marine base in Camp Pendleton and spent, I forget, about 10 days there, as I recall, learning how to set up ambushes and, and fire a lot of different weapons that normally, you know, like the BAR was a big thing back then. Um, and the M1s, it was before the uh, M16s came around. But so I graduated from that and it was kind of humorous because a couple of years later, our, our, the purpose for the um, ship's landing force was uh, when we went over to Gulf Tonkin, one of our duties was to rescue downed pilots. And the purpose of the ship's landing force was to take the motor whaleboat into the coast of North Vietnam and go ashore to rescue downed pilots. Well, a couple of years later, when I was on a, on a riverboat, I thought, what an insane idea. We would never gotten within a thousand yards of the coast before we were blown out of the water. But anyway, so yeah, I, I enjoyed my time on the USS Rogers. When do you get to your first deployment in Vietnam? That was January 1966. We left San Diego. Um, we went to Hawaii and and we spent a couple days there. And I remember where we were, the the Arizona was right behind us. And I was standing fantail watches because I was fresh recruiting. It's kind of hard to screw up what's going on behind you. And um, early in the morning, you know, five in the morning or so, it's light, just dawn. And, and I could see these oil bubbles rising the to the surface from the Arizona and it just fascinated me because figure in 65 that was only what 25 years past when it got sunk but anyway I was just talking to some friends that were over in Hawaii and they said those oil bubbles are still coming up you know after what 75 80 years after it was sunk. Wow. oh yeah yeah that's crazy um yeah, yeah. I wonder, you said you didn't have a TV and you weren't really cognizant of or aware of what was going on in Vietnam. At any point in time in the train up or when you get there, did, did, did the thought cross your mind? You're like, well, if I would have known this ahead of time, I wouldn't have signed up for this kind of deal. No, that never, never crossed my mind. 
No. No, I was, uh, first of all, on the ship, you didn't really feel threatened. Um, one, one time when we were up in the Gulf, we went in near the coast to pick up a downed pilots or, or uh, bodies, and we got a few shells coming, splashing around the ship that time. But that was the only time that we really had close incoming. We did a lot of shore bombardment and um, refueling at sea. And with the shore bombardment, Two years later, when I was on a riverboat, we were on the Quaviat River, which is just south of the DMZ. And um, it was in the spring of 68. Quezon Offensive was going on, and there was there was a lot of crap going on. But we were patrolling this river just, just we were maybe a mile and a half or two in from, not even that, about a mile in from the actual coastline. And all of a sudden, one morning, we started getting friendly fire from a ship that was off the coast. And yeah, it was amazing. None of us got injured because they were airbursts right over our boat. And it just, yeah. And there was, there were some very heavy battles going on just on the north side of the river. Um, Keith Nolan wrote a really, really powerful detailed book about that that's called i believe the magnificent bastards and it's about the marine battles on the north side of the quaviat river that spring but that's that's, awesome. that's who they were that's what the ship was firing in support of those battles yeah yeah um okay so back to your your first deployment um when do you get or do you even get into combat during that first deployment i wouldn't you know after being on a riverboat it's <laughs> perspective right yeah it's perspective it truly is like i say we had that one incident where we had a few incoming rounds um other than that we were off the coast firing uh fire support and h and i harassment and eviction fire i believe they call it um so i never never really felt threatened at all uh did you see any sort of you know of, of the horrors of vietnam in that first deployment um that day that we got shelled, I, I saw basically the skull of the pilot that had crashed and, and and the ship took off before we could even retrieve that because we were getting incoming. Oh wow. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and I'm just, you know, again, you just mentioned a moment ago about perspective. I'm just, you know, uh, we talked to so many people who have been on multiple deployments. You know, it's like one thing to get somebody to go into into combat once. It's it's tough to get them to go back. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, willfully after they've seen how bad it can be. Uh, and, and so after your first deployment to Vietnam, your first tour over there, you ended up having to go back for a second one. But before we get to the second one, when you were injured, what happened in between? Well, what happened in between honor, you know, to, I did see the results of some combat when we were going home, we stopped in Yokosuka, Japan. There's a huge naval base there to offload all our ammunition. And I, I, started getting this cramp in my side and if you've ever been in a naval work detail offloading ammunition it's like a 200 man chain carrying projectiles and power casing I kept getting worse and worse and I went to our our uh, corpsman on a ship and he just told me I was skating and trying to get out of work well I just got to the point where I could hardly walk so I went to the supply ship doctor that we were hauling the ammo to and they had an ambulance come and haul me to Yokosuka 
uh, base hospital, well, here my my appendix had ruptured. Oh, wow. <laughs> and so I had emergency surgery and I had to get blood transfusions and stuff. But I ended up on a ward, a hospital ward with a bunch of Marines who had been in, in combat and they were wounded naturally. Well, one day um, General Westmoreland came walking the ward handing out Purple Hearts. And he got to me and he just automatically set one on my bed and I said, well, sir, that's, I haven't earned that. Well, what are you here for? And I told him, and, well, we'd love to have you in the army. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> I'll, I'll consider it. <laughs> that's great. But, never, uh, never stop recruiting, right? When you're a They never stop recruiting. But, but eventually it was kind of, it was a really interesting time i waited i was in a transit barracks after my i was discharged from the hospital and that was a skating detail trying to get out of work and sometimes we'd hide they had these um yakuska has these like mini mountains giant hills and th- during world war ii the japanese had just honeycombed these hill these hills and sometimes we'd sneak into those tunnels to hide from working parties on the base but anyway so I eventually got flown back to San Diego and got on Rogers and I was there just a few months and got transferred up to Bremerton, Washington to a new construction, uh, uh, USS Samuel Gompers, which was a destroyer tender. And I was on there. I didn't like it. It was a big ship. There was too much military BS and stuff. And in those days, it was before cell phones, naturally. And I was standing on a pier waiting in line to use the, the telephone. And this, this third-class boatswain mate came off this little ship that was tied up right near us. And I'm looking at it, and he's right behind me in line, and we started visiting. And I commented what a cool-looking ship it was and stuff. And, and I, in visiting, he said, how would you? like to get a transfer he was newly wed and his bride was in seattle and he wanted to stay ashore for a while well i put in and it wasn't unusual for guys of the same rate and if you had approximately same time in service or left in service you could swap duty stations and so we put in paperwork to swap duty stations and it was denied because i didn't have a secret clearance and it never I never really gave it much thought till much later. Well, the ship that I wanted to get onto was, oh, what's the name? What's the one that Koreans, North Koreans captured? Um, Pueblo. That's the ship I was trying to get onto. And so that's why that guy had a secret clearance, I'm sure, because it was a communications ship. It was not a, a survey ship as they claimed it was. Right. But I was on there. So, so when I, the reason I'm telling that story, so I went down in officer's country to do the paperwork and stuff. And when it was denied, I saw a notice on a bulletin board. They were looking for volunteers for riverboats. So that I did get approved. And a few months later, I was down in Coronado, California, part of the mobile riverine force in training. What was it about the riverboats that excited you? Uh, at that point, it was to get the hell off the Samuel Gompers. <laughs> um, but I, I, you know, as a, as a young kid, figure I was 19 years old at that point, just turning 19. Um, the excitement, 
the excitement and just getting out of getting out of the states, getting back to sea duty. Yeah. When um when you end up back in Vietnam for your second tour, um again it's 1968. But where are you initially, and sort of what is your mission? Well, when we left the states, we left in on January 30th of 1968. And if you recall your history, Tet Offensive was triggered just then. We landed, we flew up to Alaska, on to Kadena, I believe, Okinawa. And we ended up getting stuck there for three days because uh, Tonsonut, a big air base by Saigon, was closed down. Um, we got to Tonsonut, and we couldn't get a ride down to the Delta, to um, Dongtam, for about a week because everybody's busy. Everyone's busy. And so we spent a week. It was really humorous. And I wrote about it in my muddy jungle book. Here we were on the base. Uh, John Wayne's green berets had just come out. And here we were sitting in the base movie theater watching that movie. And there was literally, you talk about uh, effects. You could literally feel outgoing artillery firing while we were watching the movie from Tonsonut area. But uh, it, but we did get down to, to uh, Dongtam, which was kind of the home port, I guess you'd call it home port, where base where our riverboats were. And we were in, we were down there for a few days waiting for the boats to come in from the tattoo operations. And yeah, eventually they did. And we took over and did a little bit of training with the old crew on the boat. And we were down, we were down in the Delta, pretty much running nonstop, as I recall, that first month. And in early March, <clears throat> Quezon Offensive was going strong, and they were having trouble keeping the Quaviat River open for supplies. So they shipped our squadron, uh, 112 of the Mobile Riverine Force, up to Quaviat. And we were up there from March till early July of 68. And what what we learned is from, LSTs would come in and drop supplies at the Quaviat Naval Base, and, and then LCM-8s would haul them upriver to, Dong Tan, or to uh, Dongha. And from Dongha, they were choppered into Quezon. That was one of the main supply routes from the way I understood. Uh, so... We were up, we were up in Dongha, or rather in, uh, Quezon. That's where we would go yeah, at night. We'd patrol the rivers during the day, and at night we'd beach at Quaviat and use the marine showers and, uh, and, uh, chow hall there sometimes. And when we were lucky, we could sneak onto a LST that was there later in the evening and ha- eat and shower there. And boy, it was wonderful because mostly we eat sea rations on the boat. But we okay. were, go ahead. go ahead. No, I was, I was just going to start oh. to ask you to develop some of this, you know, uh, sort of day to day, uh, operational tempo, if you will, uh, when you're in Quezon, uh, and obviously you're trying to protect the supply, supply lines coming through and everything else. Um, but you know, is this one of these things where you are, you know, seeing the enemy every single day, every other day, like kind of just give me some of that, the, the context there. Okay. Um, first of all, we weren't in Quezon, we were in Quaviat. Quaviat, okay. Quaviat, yeah. We never, we never were actually up to Quezon. Um, right. 
our our daily routine would go something like this. Early in the morning, we'd have our morning sea ration chow and back into the river. I was a cox and I drove the boat and our boat, so the, the audience understands, was a converted LCM-6. If you ever watched the um, movies, World War II movies, like Saving Private Ryan, where they're hitting the beaches with those ships, yep. those landing craft, that's exactly what our boats were. Okay. They retrofitted them with armor plating for World War II or for Vietnam. We had two fifty caliber turrets, port and starboard, above deck, and then we had a 20 millimeter cannon that was aft and above them. Down the well deck, we had four 30 calibers. And our mission, when we started out, when Mobile Riverine Force was formed, was to to haul army troops around. Because down in the Mekong Delta, there's very few roads. Water table is like two feet above, two feet Mm -hmm. below, you know, ground level. But anyway, back to Quaviet. So I'd back out into the river. We had a seven-man crew. Everybody would be on their duty stations in their turrets and whatnot. And we, we, mines were our biggest threat up up on the river. They'd have all night, it was kind of a dumb thing in hindsight. They, the North Vietnamese, you didn't have Viet Cong up there, you had North Vietnamese. They had all night to set mines well. So we'd have sweep gear out and you'd go up the river and it was oh, about eight miles maybe to Dong Ha. And you turn around and come back. But it was it, every day, there was 10 of our boats. And every day you'd take, move forward one step. Okay. So every fifth day you were the lead boat, which was the most dangerous position. And we were up there, oh, maybe a, a week or 10 days. And I was second in the column and the boat right in front of me, Tango 7. I was just maybe... 50 yards behind it, all of a sudden the boat was out of the water and it flipped over and and um, six of the seven-man crew got killed. Well, after that, they took and they had the crews, rather than be below deck, they had all the crew members stay topside on the inboard side of the boat from the riverbank. Um, Why was, was that? Well, so if the one survivor was topside. So, and they had actually set that guideline before Tango 7 got mined and, and um, whatever. The crew wasn't where they should have been. Um, but it was, it was kind of a lesson learned. It was, it was a sad deal. One of the things that um, over the weeks we were up there, it, it got to be so boring. You asked about how often we saw enemies, NVA soldiers. I can't honestly say I ever actually saw one up there. Really? We never actually saw one. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Um, yeah. The, both the, see, it was the first, first day that we were up there. The second day I was, we first day we were up there. We had a guide on the boat showing us where to go and stuff. And, and the Quavia river had a lot of sandbars on it, a lot of bends into other channels and stuff. And and the tide had a huge impact on the depth of the river. Well, the second, this must have been the second day I was up there. I'm following the route. I had gone earlier in the day, and all of a sudden I ran aground big time. And so we were, was probably less than 10 minutes. We were waiting for another boat to come and pull us off. 
all of a sudden we start getting incoming mortar fire. So the North Vietnamese, they were watching us. We just couldn't see them. You know, uh, as all this is going on, um, you know, and, and the amount of, uh, you know, I, I guess just firefights that you're getting in, right, or at least incoming fire that you're receiving at some point, um, none of this ever sort of triggers any sort of mental response in you to like, you know, maybe I made a bad decision or, uh, you know, I escaped this once. I don't think I'll escape it again type deal. Um, you know, the probably, no, I, at that point, I don't recall. The, one of the big problems that we had at night on at the base, the naval base at Quaviet, was incoming artillery. A few times I got caught ashore, and I, in the book I write one incident where um, I was drunker than a skunk, actually. I had pulled a decomposing <laughs> body out of the river, and I was just um, part of his flesh fell into my face and my mouth and stuff when I oh rolled him onto the boat. But I was went to the the um beer hooch and just was drowning trying to drown the taste and whatever. But we started getting incoming and I was just totally schnockered and everybody else took off for the bunkers and I'm just thinking now with it, whatever, what difference does it make as Hillary would say. Um <laughs> but Eventually, that in there. <laughs> had to get that in there. But eventually, I decided I, around as I recall, hit near the the beer hooch and some shrapnel ripped into the steel roof, and I kind of I thought, yeah, I better go find a bunker. So I'm heading towards one, and and a round will hit in front of me, and and um, I jumped into the hole it made. I didn't get wounded or anything, and <clears throat> but. After that, I thought, you know, I realized, yeah, that this was a pretty high risk. That was that was probably the most high risk time when I was up there when we were ashore at night. Yeah, yeah. I have a friend that uh, attends a writing group that I facilitate here in Bemidji, and a veterans writing group, and he was a. Uh, POW down in South Vietnam for a little over four years and he talks about yeah he talks about um, B-52 strikes how down in their holes in their bunkers how they'd be laying there hugging the earth and it just lift them right off the ground and I thought yeah I can I can kind of relate to that in a tiny way compared to the experience he went through but uh, yeah so uh, let's get to uh, the, you know, seven man crew that you were a part of um, that ends up where, you know, uh, you end up being injured um, and what happens on the events of that day. Well, our seven man crew, it was, let me talk a little bit about that. Our sure. boat captain was, he was a lifer. He was a career man and, and um, he, and I don't mean to speak badly of him. I think at that time he was already an alcoholic. Okay. Um, he, he did a good job when we were in the crap, but in between it was, there was so many, and I think it's like so much of combat when 99% of the time you're bored or 95% of the time you're bored, it's the other one to 5% that you're terrified. And 
during all those down hours, our boat captain, his nickname was Buddha, Buddha Ed Thomas. And he, he did a lot of drinking. Let's leave it at that. Um, so we had him, we had our engine man, nicknamed Snipe, uh, Brian College. I actually visited him a couple of years ago out in Pennsylvania. We're in touch. And he, he took care of the engines and engine compartment, anything electrical on the boat. Uh, we had our, our radio man, nicknamed Professor. Uh, Mentor was his last name. And I've never been able to find him. Brian and I have looked for him. We can't find him. But he was a college graduate and he was very anti-war. And in my book, I tried to, when I wrote my book, I, I didn't want to make it pro-war. Okay. I studied a lot of World War, World War One poets, Sassoon and Graves and Owen. And, and I liked the way that they presented the loss and waste of war. And that's how I wanted my book to be. Anyway, I used professors. I used Professor's um, character to portray the other side of the Vietnam experience. So we had we had him. He did a really excellent job. Um, Dennis Ka, uh, Dennis Page was one of the fifty caliber gunners. We had a other fifty caliber gunner named College. No, um, Crockett. He passed away from Agent Orange, and then we had our 20 millimeter cannon gunner named Ammons. And uh, he was a black guy and he did a really super job. And I remember uh, Martin Luther King was assassinated while we were up north. And I explored in my book, I explored that experience and how our the 20, the 20 gunner reacted to it. And I think I'm fairly accurate. If you look at my Amazon reviews, almost ex- all the riverboat guys com- comment how accurate my memories are, except for a couple, but whatever. Um, but anyway, so we were up, we were up north till. What July. was your nickname, by the way? Everybody Pardon? else had a nickname. What was yours? Uh, Ace. Okay. Eighth. Got it. Oh, <laughs> tell you a quick story about how Buddha got his name. One okay. of the other riverboat captains, Jimmy Austin, just a really neat guy. He passed away from Agent Orange. But one night we were sitting in an EM club in Japan, oh, in Japan, in Vallejo, California, during our training. And um, Buddha was a really big guy. And he, like I say, he loved his juice. And all the boat captains were sitting at this table shooting the breeze. And, and Jimmy looked over at Buddha and he says, you know, he says, you remind me of a Buddha I seen once up in Kyoto, Japan. And Ed Thomas, our boat captain, he thought that was the coolest thing. And he, that became his nickname, Buddha. He started signing things, Buddha Ed Thomas. That's great. Anyway, that's how he got his name. So what was your question? No, that was, that was how you got, what your nickname was. Okay, just a nickname. Well, I didn't hang the nicknames. Buddha hung the nicknames. When, when the crews were first introduced to the boat captain, he pretty much hung nicknames on everyone. Gotcha. That wasn't my doing. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Um, so, all right. So you have the seven man boat crew and you guys are, uh, you're on the river. Take me through it. Okay. When we're back down or up, still up north. When, no, when you get, when you guys got, when you got injured. Oh, oh, okay. So we went back down. Quezon ended in July. 
Um, we went back down to the Delta on a LSD landing ship dock. And in late July, we went on this operation down into the Yumin forest. And that was like an eight day operation was, was really rare. It was, it was interesting because we were the first Caucasians and black people that these villagers had ever seen down there. No, there hadn't been any foreigners down in the Yumin since the French left in 1954. So we were, we were really something, but that was, that was an amazing operation because as I recall, there were actually no army casualties. We, they found a lot of supplies. They did a lot of damage to the Viet Cong. Um, there is a picture in my book where they brought us, this is the only close up VC I ever saw. They brought us a prisoner to be transported to the interrogation barge and we hauled him on our boat and there's a picture of him in a boat. But anyway, that, so we returned back to Mekong River and, and, um, on August 18th, a couple, few weeks after you men on August 18th, we went out on an operation. We had a full platoon of, of army troops on our boat from the second brigade. And we're, we end up going up this little Kai Bay canal and we were mid column of about eight boats or whatever. And all of a sudden all hell broke loose. <coughs> we, I turned the boat. One of the things, what our, our, our protocol was in an ambush, you turn into the riverbank and drop the troops right into the, into the ambush. So there was a machine gun bunker right into the, into the bank. So I turned and I rammed it with the bow of the boat and I went to drop the ramp and it didn't go down. And there was a safety latch. And to this day, I don't know what happened, why it didn't go down. Cause I had the control lever. Well, I pushed it forward and didn't. But anyway, we at that point started taking M79, or not M79, but 57 recoilless rounds and B-40s, which are armor-penetrating, armor-piercing rockets, the B-40s. And we took two 57 recoilless rounds in the awning over the well deck of our boat, and that shrapnel just pretty much incapacitated the whole platoon of Army troops. And so a sergeant yelled up to me from the well deck. He says, just back off, because everybody was pretty screwed up. So I went to back off. And we took another 57 recoilless round right in front of my coxswain flat, right outside my one-inch armor plating. And that kind of sent me flying the first time. And and um, so I got backed off. And then we took a couple more B-40s. I took one on the port side of the coxswain flat, and it knocked my bar armor aside, ripped that out. And then the second one, they were pretty good shots, I'll say. <clears throat> it burned through the armor plating, and that's what I got hit with. It, it wounded me and uh, and the um, radio men, and I got knocked down, stunned, and whatnot for a bit. But I got back up, and and the radio was blaring at me, turn around, turn around. Well, the boat had turned around, and it was going back down river right into the other boat. So I got it turned around, and we started heading back up river 
and a couple more B-40s hit us. One burned through one of the 50 caliber turrets and wounded the gunner, and he got severely maimed. Um, so, yeah, it was... Eventually, we got out of the kill zone. I mean, you did everything by the book as far as follow the tactics and, you know, techniques that you were supposed to do uh, when given, and yet you sustained so many casualties. Um, do you feel in retrospect that you handled yourself the right way? You know, you. I think people in combat, you react. I get frustrated when I hear some of this business nowadays, why didn't law enforcement officers do something else? When you're in a critical situation, you react. You don't have time to think things through and make decisions. Um, in hindsight, yes, I think we did. We did everything that we could have done. Yeah, yeah. So what is the status of everybody? I mean, do you have a second to take inventory of, of whatever, where everybody is? You get out of the kill zone, but I mean, is it, is, is all, almost all of your crew wounded or, or dead at this point? No, no, actually. Um, Buddha Ed Thomas, the boat captain, he was topside actually, and he would scrunch down between the gun turrets. Um, I don't know if he was actually picked up any shrapnel because i mean when rockets detonate there's shrapnel flying everywhere you know that um but dennis page one of our 50 caliber gunners he got wounded in the legs from the same rocket that got me i'm quite or it was from the one that burned through the other 50 i'm not sure the 20 millimeter cannon gunner he picked up a little shrapnel in his legs um the radio man got hit with some shrapnel the uh, engine man down below, I don't recall. I don't think he was wounded at all because he was below deck. Uh, but Dennis, Dennis, the uh, 50 caliber gunner, after I was wounded, radioman bandaged me up. Mostly, I got kind of just sprayed with shrapnel all over. Nothing really critical. My hand got it the worst because when the rocket burned through, it missed my hand for, uh, by about two inches or so. So it kind of shredded the top of that. And the radioman bandaged that up, and Dennis was on deck behind, so I had the radioman take over the helm, and I got down and bandaged Dennis's legs up a little bit, as I recall. But we didn't have any critical injured. Um, once we got out of the kill zone, then the Buddha, the boat captain, told me to go below because I my face was kind of burned and stuff, <coughs> and. Um, so I went down into the well deck, and that was just a uh, just a total nightmare. Why? Um, well, because they had taken those rockets right on top of them. They did lose a guy, uh, Hector Lugo Moica. He was a Puerto Rican. Um, he he was killed, and the Army gunner that was actually on one of our fifties had gotten hit with a B forty. He was severely maimed. Uh, but and there there a lot of the army guys were laying in our coat on our bunks because we lived on the boats we had our bunks there but um yeah the army guys they were really most of them were really screwed up that's um yeah i mean it, when do you get a chance to sort of you know take stock and inventory and all that i mean you get out of the kill zone where do you guys head to well <laughs> there's nowhere you just keep going up the canal <laughs> i was medevaced i got some of our boats, I think in, a, in the 
column that was there, we had one, one of our boats had a little helicopter pad on it. And so it came in and, and medevac a lot of the wounded, the more critical. And I was, I don't remember how I was probably the fifth or sixth flight off of there. I don't recall, but, um, it was, so I didn't see a lot when I left the boat, Buddha told me we got out of the kill zone and we went up river a few hundred meters and, and, um, the, some of the army troops that could still navigate got off the boat and they were driven back on because they, of heavy fire. So we moved further up the river and it seemed pretty safe then. And so Buddha told me to go next door. Oh, back up a second. We had these uh, little motorized motor whale boats, they call them, to haul wounded and to transport troops, army troops. And they were hauling some of the wounded on that. Snipers started taking the, the injured out from that little boat. So Buddha told me to crawl on the riverbank. And so I did that because a medevac boat was just whatever, about 50 yards up from us. And um, so I crawled the riverbank to do that. And, and uh, that's, yeah, I I was wounded. I had a shotgun with me and I was crawling along and a um Viet Cong or whatever popped out of a spider hole and had a B forty or a fifty seven recoilless rocket. He was gonna shoot at a helicopter and I ended up having to take him out. But anyway, I got to the riverboat and I was medevaced off that little platform. Out back out we had a hospital ship back out in the Mekong River. Mm-hmm. So I was flown out there. Um, I assume you have shrapnel all over your body at this point, um, in various places, but, uh, when do you wake up next? Uh, I mean, I'm sure they, did they have to do surgery on you? Did they have to put you under and, and, or did you just pass out from exhaustion and that was it? I, you know, I was, I was not critically wounded. I had, yeah, hundreds and hundreds of little bits of shrapnel in me and, couple of pieces in my leg and like I say my hand was the worst um but I never passed out or anything like that I could walk um we got back to the colic and that was the name of the ship that I got taken to from with the medevac helicopter and there were so many critical ahead of me that day I got an after action report years later and that in that ambush they record that 82 were wounded and five were KIA that day in that ambush. So wow. there were a lot of guys that were in much, much tougher shape than I was on the cult and that needed emergency surgery. And they eventually just put me to, gave me a little shot and put me in a bed. And late that night, I ended up waking up on the operating table. Yeah. Oh, what were they operating on? My hand, they, I, it was kind of weird because they gave me a spinal in the back, you know, in my neck. So they didn't actually put me to sleep. And I, I woke up, you know, from, I was totally fatigued, exhausted, but I literally turned my head and I, my hand was out on the operating table and I could literally see them. They had my hand all opened up and they were picking bits of metal out and my watch part of the 
glass face or plastic face of the watch was actually buried in my wrist and stuff. Oh, wow. But, um, (laughs) yeah, no, I was, I was so very, very, very fortunate. Usually when a B40 came into a coxswain flat like that, the coxswain was almost always killed. Just, I, it was so amazing when you, you know, you reflect on it, that thing had to have come in at an angle and it just literally ricocheted right around us. You know, the shrapnel and naturally you get clipped with some of it. But yeah, we we're the, probably today the worst uh, repercussions from it is my eyes were badly burned from the third rocket. I had my face. I was going to ask you, with that exposure so close, you weren't burned anywhere? Well, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I had my face right up. We had one inch armor plating and then offset about a foot and a half or two feet, whatever, was bar armor. And you see a lot of bar armor on um, vehicles, on military vehicles today. I think maybe we were some of the first units that used bar armor designed to detonate rockets before they hit the armor plating. But anyway, so I had my face right up against the one inch slits in my, in my armor plating and trying to see how bad the, the damage was up in the well deck when that third rocket hit right, right below where my face was. And that flash burned my eyes pretty bad. I didn't realize it until a couple of days later when he started scabbing up and stuff. And I tell that story in the book. It was pretty terrifying because they bandaged him up then and couldn't, I was literally blind for about a week and it was, it was, yeah, scared the crap out of me. <clears throat> Did you think you were never going to see again? At that time, I, I, I didn't know and the doctors didn't know. And the other thing was the concussion from that rocket that penetrated. I had blood running out of both ears and to this day in a quiet environment, I can actually hear pretty good, you know, wearing these headphones, I can hear you just fine, but, and it's common for so many veterans and people that have been around loud noises. You get uh, tinnitus, the ringing in your ears, the sounds, the noises. And when there's background noise, everything is just so garbled. Guilty. I'm with you. <laughs> yeah. Um, and but the government's like, hey, thanks. Uh, we appreciate your hearing. Uh, you're not gonna get it, you're not gonna get it back, but we appreciate it. Yeah. Uh, anyway, so um, when are you officially medevaced out of Vietnam? <sighs> well, I spent I spent about 24 hours on the cult in the hospital ship that was in the Mekong, mm-hmm. and then I took a medevac chopper up to Tonsonu, and I was in I it was third surgery third surgical hospital i was there for two days maybe um again i i talk about in book and then i flew out to japan i was in the sixth army i was in an army hospital in tachikawa japan and i was there for about nine days eight days yeah about eight days and i flew back to the states on we landed at uh glenview naval station glenview naval air station just north of chicago on august 29th 1968 and that story i tell in the book back up just for a moment uh, um when i was in the hospital in japan so my eyes were bandaged and each day they'd clean my hands and pick shrapnel out my leg and whatnot and a 
um, maybe four days or so after I got to Japan, they took the bandages off my eyes. And amazingly, my, you know, I wear glasses, but my vision is pretty darn good. Well, I could hobble around, and one of the guys, uh, Mays was his name, he had lost a foot, same ambush that I was in, and he wanted some cigarettes, so I hobbled around, rounded up some cigarettes for him. But mm-hmm. right across from where we were, uh, the ward that we were in was a burn ward, and I I peeked into it, and boy, you, you talk about the horrors of war, and today we see it, and, and it just makes you sick. But there was a there was this burn ward, and I never will forget it. And the smell that was in there; these guys just wrapped like mummies, and as I recall, they were literally like strapped in cages so their bodies wouldn't be in contact with sheets or anything because you know they had bare flesh and whatnot. But I always think to myself, you know, people, politicians that are so pro-war and whatnot. They need to they need to walk into a ward like that and see just what see what they they're setting young people up for. Yeah. Um, was there any part of you that didn't want to leave Vietnam? You wanted to stay and finish it out. I had a lot of guilt about leaving because, like I say, I, 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 you know, there were so many people that were hurt much, much worse than I was. And I right. thought when I was in Japan, I thought, man, I, you know, I could go back to the riverboat. Um, but in talking to Mays, this guy that I got cigarettes for, I was, we were talking about going back. He had lost a foot, so he obviously wasn't, but he said, you know, and by that time in August of 68, they already had the Vietnamese, our Vietnamization program on track for the Vietnamese to take over uh, the assets, the American assets. And so there were so many, like May told me, he says, there's so many um, sailors in the pipeline being trained right now. He says, you're not going back. And he was right. I ended up at, Glen, at we like I say, we landed in Glenview Naval Air Station and got shipped up to um, Great Lakes Naval Hospital, just south of Waukegan, north of Waukegan. But, um, go ahead. Sorry. Oh, um, I was going to talk a moment about when we landed in Glenview, Mm-hmm. on august 29th 1968 so they loaded us we had a regular convoy it was a c-141 that's the giant planes okay um they loaded us onto uh hospital buses and the more critical wounded they put on on ambulances and whatnot so we had a regular convoy that was leaving the base and we we got off the base and all of a sudden we got surrounded and attacked by uh, a mob of protesters, anti-war protesters. And if there was anything that bothered me for many, many years afterward, then the convoy just slowly eased through them. We didn't get beat up or anything like that. But for so many years, if anything bothered me, I think that was one of the bigger things. Why, why these anti-war protesters would want to assault already wounded troops you know it just didn't make sense and in in 2007 i believe it was i was taking a summer writing class and i submitted an essay and about that experience and the professor steve almond 
he was he taught at Boston College. He was a visiting professor here in Bemidji that summer. And he said, This isn't this isn't true. This couldn't have happened. He says, My my parents were protesters, anti war protesters. They were nonviolent. And I said, No, this is this is what happened. Well, anyway, after that class, I it really bothered me that here's this this college professor teaching revisionist history. And so I drove down to Chicago and revisited Glenview and I had called ahead and I first went to the library and the lady gave me a newspaper from November or uh, from August 29th, 1968. Well, I don't know why for 30 years, I never put it together on the 28th of August. If you recall your history, the 28th of August was the most violent protests and riots of the of the democratic convention down in chicago and mayor daly had requested the military send in troops as backup and here in this newspaper article it talked about i think it was three thousand army troops had landed at glenview naval air station well these protesters were very well organized that's why they were out there trying to stop our convoy they just assumed we were reinforcements heading down into chicago because the protests were still going on in Grant Park and whatnot. But um, I ended up writing an article about that. It was actually published in a Vietnam magazine titled Collateral Damage. It's on a history net. Um, and I, I sent the article to Steve Allman, the professor, and, and he, he's a super guy. He acknowledged, you know, what I found was true. And he ended up doing an edit and and wrote the foreword for my muddy jungle river book oh, oh that was nice of him uh, yeah 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 i give him a lot of credit for that yeah i mean a lot of people wouldn't eat that much crow and have the uh, ability yeah. to be as humble as that and uh, definitely yeah. definitely a ton of credit um so since you mentioned it when do you decide to start writing these memoirs of everything that you had gone through um about 2000 i really you'd waited that long oh yeah Oh yeah, yeah. Um, I, I, when I got out, when I got discharged in February of '69, I needed a job. Okay, I needed a job, and so I just I had two older brothers living down in the Chicago area, so I thought I'm not going back to the farm. So I started looking around and I applied for a job as a meat cutter apprentice because I knew how to butcher having butchered on the farm when I was a kid well I got hired by Jewel Foods down there and and um, ended up 30 years in that in the food industry running butcher shops and whatnot but the reason I mentioned that story is because in in the late 90s by in 1980 we transferred my wife and I moved back to northern Minnesota here and I was managing a butcher shop Lucan's Village Foods here in Bemidji and these old World War II vets would come in shopping and, and they knew a bit about my Vietnam experience. And in the old days, in the early fifties, when they'd get together, they'd laugh and joke about, you know, the old humor and uniform cartoons you see. Well, back in the early fifties, all they did is tell funny stories about their time in the military. Well, fast forward, you know, almost 50 years, 60 years, all of a sudden, it's not, they don't remember the humor. And during the time that I was running a butcher shop there, I was always out in front helping customers and whatnot. And 
these World War II vets had come in, and over the years, it wasn't a lot of them, three or four, but they'd start telling me a trauma story about when they were in World War II, you know, maybe getting wounded or losing a friend, getting captured, whatever. And they'd start telling me the story. All of a sudden, they'd tear up and get choked up and just walk away shaking their head. And their stories went to their grave with them. And many years later, after I started going to college, after I I retired, I came to realize a couple of things. These old guys, very possibly, it was the anniversary date that they came to tell me their story. And it was very possibly the first time they had ever shared their story with anyone. And so I thought, you know, if I don't tell my stories, they're going to die with me too. And so I, yeah, I, I retired in 2001 and started taking mostly writing classes. I just went part-time to Bemidji State University. And I was, I was really fortunate. The professors empathized with me telling my stories. And I just started out writing memory stories. And for 10 years, I did that. And just writing literally memory stories. I didn't do it chronologically. I didn't make a timeline. I just started telling stories of my time on a riverboat and what I remembered. And at some point, quite a few years into the, into the experience, a grad student suggested putting them chronological. And I did that. And it was, it was quite an amazing revelation because putting them chronological, I, it started making more sense. The experience started making more sense to me. And professors started encouraging me to make it into a book. And yeah, 10 years ago, there it was. And Muddy Jungle Rivers is there. Now, um, in the 90s, you had been diagnosed with PTSD. It's something you speak on often now. Correct. Uh, What does it mean to you to to have PTSD? And and what do you tell people about it? Um, Yeah. In the early 90s, I was... I got notice. I so I was in the VA system from 1969 because they sent me from Great Lakes Naval Hospital to the VA in Chicago, and so I, you know, I healed up and whatnot. And I never went to a VA hospital for a few decades, actually. And um, in the early 90s, I got a notice to come in. They were doing an Agent Orange uh, registry. And so I, by then we were back in Minnesota. I went over to Fargo, North Dakota VA hospital and I'm visiting with this young doctor and, and he was shocked to see, he was shocked to see that I was in the system and he asked me why. And I says, well, I, you know, I, I was in the hospital in 1969 in Chicago. And he says, well, what happened? And I just told him I was wounded in Vietnam and he says, well, what happened? So he wanted to know the details. And so I started explaining the ambush to him and I was just kind of shocked. I just started getting choked up and teary eyed and stuff. And he says, have you ever been examined for PTSD? What's that? I had never heard of it before. And so, yeah, he set me up with a interview and, and um, here I am. No, trying to help others. Yeah, and, uh, and it's 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 amazing that you are. I, I just, you know, there are so many from your generation who, who you know, th- those four letters weren't part of the lexicon for your no. generation. 
no, are commonplace it, it, for veterans of my generation and guys yeah. like me. Um, how much more do you find talking to fellow Vietnam vets um, is more, I don't want to say relatable when it comes to PTSD, but th- there's a different level of connection with Vietnam vets and there is other, you know, post 9-11 vets. There's a huge difference. I haven't really visited, you know, where I live in this little community that we have, uh, there's like four veterans in our little <laughs> subdivision, our little development. And a couple of them are like your age or younger. And, and uh, I invited them several years ago after my Vietnam, my Muddy Jungle book was published. Our VA doc, Peterson, invited me to facilitate a veterans writer group at the VA clinic. Well, since COVID, we go to the armory now. But right. anyway, so all Vietnam veterans joined it. And I invited these younger guys, Desert Storm, Desert Shield guys to join our group. And, and, they, nah, and the one guy, he says, you know, I get together with my buddies once a couple times a month or whatever. And we sit around and have a few beers in the and the bonfire and he says we're good and, and i could so much relate to that because that's how we were back in the 70s you know, right we just we didn't want to get involved in things um so yeah yeah but so it in our group today it's all it's pretty much all vietnam veterans and um with our writing i use i use two books i'll promote this writing war you can't see it it's backwards anyway writing war by ron caps and you might be familiar with him. Um, he has a veterans writer program and it's a wonderful book full of prompts and why we write and whatnot. And so we, that's part of our curricula for our writer group. The other thing that uh, we're just working on right now, it's um, called the post-traumatic growth workbook. A couple of years ago, I was invited to speak at this vet center uh, mental health group of therapists out at the VA clinic, VA hospital in Fargo. And I asked the group, how many of you incorporate the concept, the theory of post-traumatic growth into your therapy for your, your patients? Not one of them. I don't know if they were condescending because I'm not a mental health professional or what, but I was just shocked, you know, and so often when I ask people, are you familiar with post-traumatic growth? No one has ever heard that concept, and it's just amazing to me. And there's so many, again, I'll mention my friend that was a POW for, for four years, and there's so many like him, you know, veterans, that they were injured or they had severe trauma, but they've moved beyond that, and and um, they've done so much with their life. And that that's basically what post-traumatic growth is all about. 100%, um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, you know, I, I talk to people about it and there's the, the, the common thing they're afraid to do is put the D on the end of PTSD, right? Well, we don't want to call it yeah. a disease or disorder or a disease or whatever because of the connotation that comes with that. I mean, call it whatever you want. I, I don't know that it matters. Uh, we all know if you're dealing with it, we all know what it is uh, and, yeah. and the, the problems and issues that it can cause. But again, if you want to focus on things like the remedy of post-traumatic growth, that's probably a more positive conversation than whatever label you want to give to the stressors that combat has left us all with. Yes, very much. So well said, well said. Yeah. One of the things when, when I 
probably about 2015, I was invited to do a presentation down in Minneapolis, St. Paul, about my writing experience and PTSD. And that's when I first came across the term post-traumatic growth. But I, I've come to realize, and I, I found this book, uh, Writing to Heal. I don't have it in front of me. Um, not Pennebaker. Anyway, um, Writing to Heal is the name of the book. And I started reading it, and I thought, this is exactly what I was doing for 10 years, taking writing classes at BSU. As in writing my experiences, I was framing them. And each time you take a trauma experience and you put it down on paper, you're putting borders on it and you can start exploring it and rearranging some of the, I always compare a trauma experience as like a video clip bouncing around in your head. Okay. Mm -hmm. And each time you think about it, it's a little bit different, but you can never really make sense of it. But if you put it down on paper, you take ownership of it for starters. And you can start one of the things in my writing classes that I do, my writing workshops, I have what I, I have in the um, writing exercises, I have what I call an outer story. It's a journalistic, the who, what, when, why, where. Okay, those are pretty safe things to write about. And so I'll have the participants write a paragraph or two using that criteria. But then I get to what I call inner story, your senses, you know, what did you hear? What did you see? If you ate, what did you taste? You know, sometimes in writing, you'll, someone will write about how they could taste the cordite. Well, you don't actually taste that, but you know, it's such powerful senses. And when you start writing about the senses, then it becomes personal because no one else can share what you as an individual experience. And that's when a lot of times people find some meaning to what they experienced or find some resolution or whatever to their traumas. One of the huge things that so many veterans struggle with is uh, survivor guilt. And I think that's what I was dealing with when I was even back in the hospital in Japan. Why don't I go back to to the boat? But 50 years later, you come to realize I had no reason to feel guilty. There was, it wasn't realistic for me to go back. You know, uh, mental health and and post-traumatic stress are are sort of themes throughout some of your other books because uh, you have four of them total now, correct? And uh, I mean, that's, you know, how, how does all, what's the connective tissue between all that? How does it all come together? Um, Because you're, you're a nonfiction writer. So um, these things are all based at least in some measure of truth. Um, you know, it's, it's a tough subject to write on because usually it's personal, right? It is until I did, I've done so much research over the past decade and a half. Um, you get to a point where it's not so personal anymore. It's more objective rather than subjective. Um, just, a tiny bit of background. I was born in New York city. I never knew who my father was. Um, my mother, uh, put an ad in it's called the title of the play of the thing is Cupid's columns. It was a lonely hearts club newspaper. Okay. So here she was basically homeless in New York city in 1949 with four little kids. And she put this ad in the paper 
and Herman Affield in Debish, Minnesota, north of Bemidji, you know, 35-year-old bachelor farmer answered the ad. Well, no, he was 43 then, actually. And she was about, let's see, she'd have been 28 by then. Um, so there was about a 15-year age difference. Anyway, he answered the ad, and we disappeared from New York City. My grandmother, my grandparents lived in New York, and my grandmother was threatening to have my mother committed to a mental hospital. And so that was kind of one of her motives for getting the hell out of town. Anyway, we moved to Nebish, Minnesota. And that's basically where I grew up. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's but, a, yeah. but fast forward, I mentioned earlier that my mother was, in fact, committed about a decade after she moved here. And we were in foster homes and whatnot. <clears throat> well, she died in 2010. And locked in the chicken house on our old farm where she spent her last 60 years, I discovered 200 years of our family history, maternal family history. And I, some of my siblings wanted to burn up because at first glance, it looked like just a pile of junk. And I started digging through it. And my sister, Laurel, and I started digging through it. And what we found was just incredible. Um, the earliest letter I found was from a David Omstead. He had marched. I did a lot of research. Like I said, I learned that he had marched with Washington in the Hudson River campaigns. Well, anyway, my grandmother, I had thousands, this, all this stuff got there. When my grandmother died in 1984, my mother inherited it all. And it was shipped from Seattle, Washington, and she locked it, literally locked it in a chicken house, never visited it. Never would let any of us kids look at it. Um, but there was thousands of letters that my grandmother, or hundreds of letters my grandmother had written. And in some of the letters, she references my mother having being schizophrenic. Okay. I actually have two letters drafts. One she wrote to Governor Dewey of New York and one she wrote to Eleanor Roosevelt. Please help me find my schizophrenic daughter and her four children because that was in 49 and 50 after we disappeared. So I started studying schizophrenia because I knew I knew at some point I was going to tell my mother's story. And I thought to deal with it, I need to understand schizophrenia. So I started really studying it. And a term borderline personality disorder kept popping up. And when my wife and I, my wife Patty and I were flying down to Tucson to visit our daughter, several years ago and in the airport in Minneapolis, St. Paul, here I discovered this little book, Borderline Personality Disorder Demystified by Robert O. Friedel. And I bought it and I started reading it. And by the time we landed in Phoenix, a few hours later, margins were scribbled up and sentences were underlined. Friedel's symptoms of borderline fit my mother just to a T, just fit her perfectly. And so since then, I've studied it a tremendous amount, and I'm 100% confident that that's what she would have been diagnosed with today. But back in the 60s, it was, it wasn't, it was actually borderline was recognized the same year PTSD was in 1980 or 82, whenever. Yeah. So, so in, in my writing, and one of the things I, anyone that does any, history any research for family writing boy i encourage them to get the military records of their veteran ancestors 
I got my stepfather's records and I learned that he was in North Africa. Well, for some reason, okay, and I got the information how he was sent to the back. He had a, uh, well, they call it shell shock. He had a breakdown and he got shipped back to the States early. So I had that information, so much detail information I had from from him and from my grandfather and from eventually my biological father in 2014, <clears throat> my sister and I did DNA tests mm-hmm. and my sister, what, what we learned from my two older brothers and my sister and myself, the kids that my mother brought to the farm, we had between us, there were three fathers involved. Well, we knew, yeah. See, and that's, that goes directly to a borderline that goes directly to a borderline uh, diagnosis, fear of abandonment, fear of being alone, being impulsive. You're lonely. A guy comes along. What do you do? You know? Um, So anyway, in 2017, my sister Laurel got a call from a guy, David in Cincinnati, Ohio, who discovered my sister's sibling. And we went down there. It just so happened I was scheduled to be the keynote speaker at a USS Rogers reunion in, in uh, Chattanooga. And so I took a little detour, went to Cincinnati, met Laurel's new family. And I met the man, David, who had discovered Laurel's father. And when he learned that I didn't know who mine was, he's a retired genetics scientist. He, I mean... What's the odds of in the whole world finding a person like that connecting? Um, he started searching for my father. And two years later, in October of 2019, he made the connections. And, and um, yeah, it was. Uh, there's a link uh, for a TV interview that we did together. My new one of my newfound brothers, myself, and it was it was just such an amazing experience. I I reached out who my one brother, Louis uh, Rion, lives in Montauk, New York. We went and spent a week out there with him, and it was he and his Patty, his wife, Patty. And it was it was so amazing to meet all of my new siblings. Yeah, just so That's incredible. Experience. I mean, just, I mean, it, there's silver lining, right? I mean, after all that, no, yeah. no, one, no one could have written that story down and uh, made it make any sense. But you, you and your, your siblings are living it. So that's a... Uh, that's incredible. Again, it's uh, it's the 10 year anniversary of uh, Muddy Jungle Rivers. Uh, you can get it on Wendell's website, WendellField.com, W E N D E L L A F F I E L D. So, Affield with two Fs, Wendell as it sounds, um, WendellAffield.com, as well as all of your other books, again, that are, um, you know, historical fiction, historical nonfiction, so to speak, uh, but personal stories to you and your family. So, uh, congratulations on the success of Muddy Jungle River. Obviously, it's also available on Amazon, anywhere else you get books. Um, but the, the, the reviews of it are, are, are just lauded with the realism and certainly the authenticity of what it takes, uh, or, or what had happened to you and what you survived in Vietnam. And, and, uh, it's a testament that you're still here and that you are still telling these stories. And, and as you said, uh, keeping a lot of memories alive. Mark, thank you. It's been a pleasure visiting with you. Wendell Outfield, thanks for being part of the Hazard Ground. Take care. You've been listening to Kill Cliff's Hazard Ground podcast. 
hosted by Mark Zeno. If you have an interesting story to tell and you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at producer at hazardground.com. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Thank you.